0: And inspire compassion toward those hurting. Mm -hmm. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices. This is your host, Victoria Volk, and today I have Rachel Ingstrom with me. She has a master's of social work. She is a certified health education specialist and has written a groundbreaking memoir self-help book on her experience as a young cancer wife, then widow. With the increasing number of young women and men becoming widows or widowers due to not only cancer and serious illnesses, but also now COVID-19, this resource is needed more than ever. Rachel shares her journey in a raw and honest way while providing step-by-step resources to help you navigate your own journey. Never before has there been a combination of the personal grit of the healthcare journey, along with steps on how to navigate treatment, diagnosis, the ins and outs of hospital life, employment, finances, insurance, self-care, grief and loss, and much more. You can find Wife, Widow, Now What?, How I Navigated the Cancer World and How You Can Too on Amazon, which will be linked in the show notes. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's talk about the birth of your book and really how this, probably what started out as a passion project was, which was your life unfolding. Mm -hmm. How, where did your, where does your story begin?
1: I am about to be 39 and I moved here. I'm in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area. I moved here in 2000. So almost 21 years ago to go to the University of Minnesota. And in my soft, I moved here, not knowing one person, no family, anyone was here that I knew. And in my sophomore year, first semester, I went to a birthday party and a friend of mine, it was she was having a party for her boyfriend and his friend from work came. So this tall guy who's six two, who's, you know, almost seven years older than me showed up. And I just thought that he was really cute and nice and, you know, inquired about him to the friends the next day. And he did the same about me and we dated for three years. And then when I graduated from college, three months after that, I got my first job right away. And then I got married at 22 and he was about to be 28. And then, so he worked nights the whole time we were together. So that was pretty cool. I mean, I missed him a lot, but that was pretty cool in that I was able to become my own independent adult person within my 20s and um, still have that relationship and that consistency in my life of being with him. And then when I was 28 and he was about to be, or excuse me, I was 28 and he was 35. He just really didn't feel well one day and went to the doctors that turned into go to the hospital for blood transfusions turned into go to this clinic. They didn't tell us it was a cancer clinic. Then he was misdiagnosed with something. And then the next day had a bone marrow biopsy. And two days later, he's diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So at age 28, I'm already grappling with a few months before that, learning that I have endometriosis um, cysts, whatnot that had ruptured on my reproductive organs I'm grieving that I might not be able to have children, things like that. And then this couples with that. And I have to very, very quickly learn how to navigate the serious illness world, insurance disability, all these things, which is why you list that all of that, along with having this cancer life become my norm. So I'm working eight hours, running back home to let the dog out, then running to the hospital for a few hours, then running back home, you know, petting the animals, trying to pay attention to them for 20 minutes before I you know, pass out, rinse and repeat the next day. So that was quite a lot. So that was my life. I, I did have a lot of support from my parents who are in a different state. They came and lived with us for 18 out of the 27 months that my husband was sick and he got a lot better and then relapsed, unfortunately, a year and a half after his initial diagnosis. So we had to hospitalize him after he relapsed on the day of our eighth wedding anniversary. And what was interesting is going back a year when he, and so he got sick in January of 2011, he had a fever and had to be hospitalized in August of 2011. And one of the nurses said, Oh my gosh, you guys are still together. I can't believe you're together. This is amazing. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she told me that during cancer, and serious illnesses that, in her experience of 25 plus years, she'd seen 70% of more people come back that needed medical care that their significant others left them, or the marriages didn't work her out, or things like that. And that just totally blew my mind because we had to, we knew very quickly on that this is scary. You know, of course, we're hoping he's not going to die, but that we're in this together. We can't afford to fight or, you know, disagree that much or those types of things because this is such a serious thing. So in January of 2013, he had a bone marrow biopsy, or excuse me, he had a bone marrow transplant days after I had a surgery for endometriosis, and he had had a lot of chemo and radiation to prepare his body. When you have a bone marrow transplant, they have to wipe out your entire immune system um, like you're a newborn baby to take these stem cells from umbilical cords. That was his donor. Um, And just the chemo, the radiation, all those side effects ultimately ripped up and shredded his kidneys, his um, bladder, lungs, things like that. So he was in the ICU once, you know, was preparing for him to die miraculously within a two-week turnaround. He was out of the ICU, out of the hospital, in a rehab, was learning to walk again, do all those kinds of things. And then he went for an appointment and things kind of went downhill. And then on April 17th, I was told um I got a call early in the morning and he said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And he had been on um regular like oxygen, but they needed to put him on high flow oxygen. He just he wasn't breathing well through the night. And then they called me um and said he needed to be innovated. And he got on the phone and we said, I love you to each other three times. And then when I got to the hospital, Um, he was kind of freaking out and I asked them to give him a high dose of pain medicine. So it would just knock him out. And then once he was comfortable, I was sitting in this chair and I had three doctors come and tell me, I'm sorry. And they said, we'll decide within 48 hours, you know, when's the appropriate time basically to take him off life support. Um, and two days later, when we're going to do this is my 31st birthday. And two days after that, So then they said, okay, we'll wait another 48 hours. But I just knew within that he was gone. It wasn't even him anymore. You know, he's just seeing him slip away. And what was amazing is what carried me through significantly was my, my faith, my faith in God and all of those things. But I just had so much peace and so much grace within it. I was just very numb to all of it. And I believe that, you know, the biggest factor was my faith for feeling that way. But what I later learned later when I was trying to be in, um, learn more and be in young widow groups and things like that, um, what I was seeing that I didn't quite realize is I had, I was given so much grace and that I was able to be with him as he was dying. So many people have their significant others die in war or, you know, a freak accident at work or those types of things, I was actually able to be with him. Um, so on the 21st, I signed the papers and everything. He was so amazing. He did extra bone marrow biopsies and spinal taps and things like that, um, for research at the university of Minnesota. So I signed the papers that morning for him to, um, donate his body to the university of Minnesota, which is what he wanted to do. And then, um, called our minister it's sunday so he's in church so then we had to wait for him to come and then had the few family members that were there say bye and then i had made a heaven playlist the night before because i knew that he was going to die the next day and i had them unplug him we cleaned up his face a little bit and then i played a playlist and helped my husband my life my best friend everything that i knew as i waited for his heart to stop so i was two days after i turned 31 and then i walked out of the room and i was rachel 2.0 I was a widow. So I just, I had to restart and I had to reboot my life literally like a computer because I had been thinking I was going to have, you know, little feet running around the house that are half me, half him. I'm going to have someone help me pay for this house. We're going to go on trips. We're going to do all of these things. So I had to figure out how to navigate all of it the cancer part was hard enough, but this was navigating all of it. And especially with being a 28 year old cancer wife is hard, but being a 31 year old widow is insanely hard because you don't know anyone else in your circle of people going through that. So ultimately that led me to the idea of writing a book. So my book, wife, widow, now is chronological order of my caring bridge medical post that got emailed out to everybody, my Facebook post, And so it's my narrative between all these real-time posts. So when I'm figuring out insurance, I walk you through, bam, 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 this is how you do it. This is diagnosis, treatment, work. When people want to help, these are tangible ways to tell them they can help. Um, Getting counseling for yourself, getting counseling for the patient, um, ways to adapt your house. You know, I, I had no idea I'd be 28 and be needing to get, you know, a shower chair and all these things. And, so basically my book is a love story, but the tips and the tricks of how I navigated all the illness part and then how I navigated all the widow part, the anniversaries, the um holidays, all those first, all those feelings. And it's very gritty in that I don't, it's beautiful, but I don't sugarcoat anything, you know, when I one day I may be like, oh, today's a great day. And the next day I'm like, I can't stop crying. So it's really unique in that this is the first of its kind memoir, self-help, how to merge the narrative and the realness of the journey with the medical aspect of how you do both. So I put all that together and it was very much a labor of love and a lot of PTSD, but I'm really proud to have it out there as there's nothing like this to help people navigate it.
0: It's a lot. Thank you. So how many years ago was this now?
1: Uh, April 21st, it'll be eight years.
0: What has life been like since
1: So it was really hard. (laughs) It was really hard at first, Um, just for fun, just for kicks. I took classes to get a certification in grief counseling because I wanted to know about grief, the process, all of those things, learning about, you know, ambiguous loss of suicide and, you know, all the different kinds of grief, what people go through. My bachelor's degree is in anthropology, so just culturally it was fascinating because I was part of this culture I knew nothing about. It's like literally being dropped out of an airplane into a foreign country. You don't speak the language. You don't know anybody. You don't know where you are. You have to start over. It was, it was really, really difficult working three part-time jobs to try to pay for a house. Like I said, I thought I'd have someone help me with. Lost a lot of friends, not because people didn't care, but I think they didn't know how to adequately help. And kind of like you have, you know, when you have a job, you have your work family of friends there and then you leave and then you're like, oh, you know, I don't really talk to them that much anymore. The really hard part is about going through something as catastrophic as your friendships, your relationships ebb and flow and change that way as well. Um, I, I purposely, with a lot of intent, stepped away from the cancer world, the illness world, all of that for years because it was just too close, too hard. You know, there were movies that came out. I remember like A Fault in Our Stars and a couple different ones where people were like, Rachel, do not watch those. Do not even, don't even touch it. Those things are really difficult. My brother, who's 14 years older than me, told me in the very beginning when he came right before Grayson got sick, or excuse me, when he got sick, you know, you you can choose to be bitter or better. And I wasn't always better. I have a chapter called Bitter Betty but within that I had to, I had to, I didn't have anyone else that I was responsible for besides my pets besides me. So I had to know that like it or not, I had to reboot. This was my new life. And within that I chose to surround myself with positive people. I had a couple very long-term friendships that ended up not appropriately supporting me and being very judgmental and toxic that I had to cut out of my life. Um, just a lot of growing pains of being this new person, this new role, this not definitely not asked for a role. So navigating all that was really tough. Navigating just having enough money to afford the house and everything, that was just insanely tiring. I worked for a year and a half, I worked three part-time jobs, two with autistic children, one with a lady with multiple sclerosis, running all across the Twin Cities. It'd be like five or 600 miles a week. Navigating all of that, I forgot to say six months after my husband died, I had had so much pain, I could barely walk. So I had a hysterectomy. So then I gave up the ability to have kids, which was another huge loss. But then, you know, later on, victoriously, I'm in Target and walking past like the tampon aisle and just like so excited. (laughs) You know, it's the little wins. But, um, three months after he died, I actually, um, went to Alaska for almost three weeks by myself, took a cruise was always like, you know, I've seen the Titanic tell me what you will, I will, you know, that they're safe these days. I will never go on one, but I also didn't think that I would be a widow at 31 either. So I gave myself space and time to see nature, all these places you can only get to by boat and plane, um, things like that. So it was a lot of, a lot of trial and error over the years I had met my husband when I was 19. So dating again in my thirties was insane. I got hurt. I got my heart broken. I was naive. I was stupid. I didn't make the smartest choices sometimes, but I was, I was just believing the whole time that God had a plan and like footprints, I wasn't going to be dropped, you know, the second set of footprints in the sand. And um, that's ultimately what carried me through. And in Also finding out surrounding myself, not only with appropriate people, but, you know, funny TV shows, uplifting music, things like that, because there are a lot of really sad things out there. I didn't always excel at taking care of myself. So those were some learning points. You know, when your spouse dies, you don't want to sit around and eat salads. You want to eat cake. You want to eat pizza. You want to eat things that necessarily don't fill you up with endorphins. They make you more sluggish, (laughs) but you do what you need to do. So in time, things got a lot better and I don't really speak about love life or anything except in my book. That's my one disclaimer. You have to, you have to read it because it's at the end of the book. That's kind of my happy ending, but what's truly incredible to me is where I am in my life now. I'm, I had besides <laughs> hard to articulate this sometimes without feeling like offending people but it's true like losing your parent losing your sibling losing your grandparent those things are so hard they're so hard but the only thing i could equate with losing a spouse to would be how i can't imagine losing a child but losing a spouse is definitely not planned especially as young as you know i was 31 he was 37 so it's very very tricky to find adequate support in those types of things because when people say, "Oh, my mom died or my my whoever died, I, I understand." You don't understand. You really don't understand. So it's a different kind of grief. It's more complicated. It's the person that was in your house every day. You know, even a year after he died, I would look at the door and expect him to walk through it. All those types of things. So what's incredible to me is that I went from being the saddest of the sad, not able to get out of bed, you know, my reproductive organs are have been taken out of me, my my hope of being, you know, a mom and all these different things, and my husband's gone and whatnot, that I went from there to writing a book, despite how painful it was, writing a book and now speaking about. The positive things I focused on, the positive things you can focus on, um, it will be over by the time this is aired. But right now in the state of Minnesota, I am running for woman of the year trying to raise $60,000 for blood cancer. Um, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society did so much for me. I did two half marathons walking them. I'm not a runner. Two half marathons walking them. I did. One the year after he was diagnosed, and one the year after he died. So in 2012 and 2014. And within that, I found friends for life, people that backed me, people that supported me. And if I can get $50,000, I can get a grant in his name. And, you know, I'm just, I'm pumped to help people because as great as advancements are, Every three minutes, someone's diagnosed with blood cancer. Every nine minutes, someone dies from blood cancer. One in five people are going to get cancer in their lifetime. 80 It's the number one childhood blood cancers, typically acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the type of leukemia my husband had, which usually children get or elderly people get. 80% of childhood cancer survivors of this have catastrophic like chronic health conditions, whether it be... So my husband, a year after he was diagnosed, he's 36, looks great, you know, full head of hair, he's super healthy. Um, You know, no one knows he has cancer. If you saw him, the steroids that he took for the first part of his treatment had rotted his hips to the point where there was a crack and it was the hip bone was falling out of the socket. So I have another friend that his son, or excuse me, his, that I met while my husband was actively dying this person I met cause he was, he was so nice. It was a friend through a friend and he gave me money to stay in the hotel across the street because his wife had died five months before that. When his twins were three and then three years ago when the twins were nine, um, one of them got diagnosed with a kind of blood cancer. So this little, he's lost his wife. Now one of his two sons has cancer and, He's getting, the little boy got really, really sick. His name's Jake. He's an insane warrior. Now he's fine. His treatments are done, but he's had to wear leg braces because his legs are just, his bones are, you know, so there's so much that's amazing. Like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has cutting edge research, which actually informs other forms of cancer. Their treatments and things are helping all forms of cancer. So it's not just blood cancer I'm trying to get funds for. But these side effects are awful. We can acutely treat them when they're happening and get you into remission, but these side effects are not quite there. So I feel really privileged and proud to be able to do this in honor of my late husband because he did these extra bone marrow biopsies, donated his body to the University of Minnesota. He wanted to help people. So in a way, I'm really proud to be able to have him live on through my story live on in this way. And this usually does not make me cry, but <laughs> I'm just really excited. He would just be pumped to know that I've turned my life into advocacy in his honor. So that's where i met today.
0: I love that. How about Thank you tell you. us a little bit about him?
1: Oh, he was funny. So his name is Grayson and he was just like, gosh, golly, nice to the point where he'd say like, I'd hand him something and he'd say, appreciate it. And I'd be like, what? (laughs) He was so nice. Um, He had, he would ask the nurses like, can I trouble you to get me something? And they would like fall over laughing. Like, it's our job. Of course, we're going to help you. He loved New Order and the Pet Shop Boys and techno music and going with his, best friend Owen for craft beers and discovering breweries and different things. And um, from his best friend that I spent a lot of time with after that, I was friends with anyway, but spent a lot of time with after Grayson's death, he's like, he would just, and he rolled his eyes when he told me, he's like, he would just talk about you all the time. It was just all the time. And, you know, we really were the best of friends and we had what I call a space age marriage where we, Rarely ever fought. Granted, we didn't really see each other Monday through Friday because he was working. But, um, you know, when we did have arguments, it was over piddly, stupid stuff. And I was in my 20s having those growing pains and whatnot. And as he works nights, you know, we didn't have a dishwasher in our little apartment. And I would want him to wash his dishes, but he couldn't wash them at night when he got home late at night because the kitchen was by the bedroom and it would have woken me up. And then he was a serial procrastinator, so he would be so tired he'd get up late, you know, work, and then ha- he'd get up at, like, 1, one thirty, then have to work at 3. So I just passively, aggressively would stack those dishes on a cookie sheet on the stove because <laughs> <laughs> they were his. <laughs> but um, he was just a joy. He was a lot of fun. Everybody loved him. The nurses told me they fought over him, you know, who that they had everybody's index cards of patients in the room who had who and they would fight over who got to take care of him. And, um, you know, I would bring blankets and a lamp and, you know, different things to make the hospital room like a little home. And they would say, oh, the lovebirds are in their apartment and, you know, things like that. So we just made the most of it. And despite him being sick, we actually were given the gift of time, you know, that we hadn't had our entire time together Monday through Friday. Sunday, being able to spend time together and we'd have sleepovers and I'd be on my little hospital cot on the floor and he's, you know, two feet above me and we're holding hands, you know, watching movies and stuff like that. But he was just a really good guy. And I know that, you know, with, from from what I've learned, you know, different marriages, different things, different relationships, you don't always get to have that nice story and closure where there's a death you know, you're left with, you know, what was, or I wish I would have said, or I wish I, you know, I did have woulda, coulda, shouldas, but not in big ways, not in big ways. You know, I I felt guilty for a couple of years because while he was sick, he would always want me to come snuggle with him on the couch. And I'd be across the room on the other couch, just insanely tired, exhausted on the couch and not wanting to move. He'd be like, come snuggle. And I'm like, well, well, that's the last thing I want to do. I'm so tired. So I feel bad. Cause I'm like, he wanted that. I could have done that. But besides that, I really don't have any regrets. And, you know, I asked him a couple days before he died, he was awake for a couple minutes, just his eyes were barely open, but you know, I knew it and we had a healthcare directive and everything, but do you trust me? Do you understand what's going on? Do you understand what's going to have to happen? And, you know, he shook his head. Yes. And ultimately I was just prematurely, obviously in my head, I know that I'm, you know, devastated. My world's been thrown a grenade, but while I was, while my mom and I are waiting in the snow for my dad to pick us up after I've left the body of my husband upstairs at the hospital, I just have these immense feelings of relief because he's not in this diabolical pain he's not going through horrific things anymore that wasn't really him anymore anyway you know it was just what was the it was unfortunately like you know you change sounds like a really awful example but you know you when you get new carpet in your house and you can go look at samples and there are those remnants, you know, he was remnants of who he was. That's what was left the last few days. He had given it his all. He had fought so hard. I had confirmed with the doctors many times, especially the day he died, you know, there's really nothing else they can do. And within that I had the peace of knowing in the grand scheme of things, it didn't make sense why he had to die, but biologically his body just gave out and, you know, God love him. He did the, he did the most that he could and the love that I had for him and that he had for me ultimately helped set me on the path of who I am today.
0: Was hospice care never talked about?
1: No, because he was, um, so it wasn't a necessary thing to have because he was in the hospital. So he left our house on January 21st. He died on April 21st. So it literally 90 days because it took 60 days for his um, stem cell transplant to take for the bone marrow transplant and things like that, he was like in the cancer ward. So he had that high level of oncology um, care specific for what he was going through. So, I mean, I was assuming, I was pricing like um, walkers and stuff like that. You know, I was thinking cause he'd been to rehab and things like that. I was thinking that he was going to come home and I had someone ask me a couple of weeks ago, on a different show, like, did you really think that he was going to be fine and get better? And I was, I said, yeah. And she said, why? And I was because he, we were so young, you know, when you're 31 and you're 37, you assume, you know, you are unbreakable, unbeatable. You feel like you're a superpower. You have the whole rest of your life in front of you. So I really did not, I, when you're the caregiver, the spouse or the main person caring for someone, you don't, at least in my opinion, you don't get the luxury of believing that your person's going to be anything but fine because you're the cheerleader, you're the you know manager, the captain, the rah, rah, we can do this of the ship. So I really, until they told me, I'm sorry on the 17th, I really thought that he would make it. Um, and then at that point, because he was in the ICU, that was the adequate care he needed to take care of him.
0: I had Dr. Chris Kerr. He's the author of death is but a dream. Um, It's all about end of life experiences. And he Mm -hmm. has done extensive research on the subject and he's part of that docu-series on Netflix called surviving death in episode Mm -hmm. five. And you might find that episode interesting just because he talks a lot about the medicalization of dying. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was kind of curious on the hospice aspect of that. Sure. So what, What are some of the things that I know you kind of spoke to like the, some friendships fell away, which naturally often happens with grief, but what are some of the things that were helpful to you that people shared with you or said, and some of the hurtful things too?
1: Oh, yes. Well, the, I, I know how you feel is really hard. I had a lady that she was, she was very sweet, very well-intended. She was a lady in her sixties from church that helped do a fundraiser different things for me but she would come and she you know I never let her in my house because I know she would never leave <laughs> she would stand on my porch and come and check on me and different things like that and she kept telling me like oh I know how it feels I I know what it is you know I've been there da 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 um she told me how she lost her mom and she was saying she was a widow and I'd be like oh my gosh I'm so sorry da da After like four or five of these visits, it turned out like she was like, oh, no, I'm married. It's just my husband volunteers at church so much. I feel like a widow. And I was like, oh, (laughs) just like I just wanted to slam the door on her face. I think the toughest thing I had someone really close to me in my life tell me after about six months, just just decide to be happy. Just like pick a day and decide to be happy. I think it's really tough when people don't realize that grief doesn't have a start and end date. It's on your own timeline, especially with every grief journey is different. The circumstance of death is often very different. You know, you could put 10 people in a room and they all have different ways someone died. Um, mine, you know, being able to be there with him, like I said, for me made it a lot easier. And what was interesting is his, His PA is um. What can I think of it? What the acronym is? Um, Physician's assistant, who was was like junior doctor. She was the one that after he was unplugged and everything, you know, I laid down next to him and covered. She covered us up, and I'm you know because I laid there and waited an hour for his heart to stop. She said, "Give me your phone." I said, "Why?" And she said, "Let me take a picture." And I said, no. And she said, yeah, you're going to want this. And she was right because I wanted to look at these horrific pictures of what he looked like to really get and formulate. That's not him. He had to go. But yeah, it's, it was just really interesting to know and see what it was for me versus what it was for other people. Um being part of those widow, widow groups online, different things like that. Um, you know, it's, it just sounds, I'm having a hard time articulating this because it just sounds very odd, but like there was a woman in the group that her husband, apparently she was like barely five feet tall. Her husband came home from Afghanistan. And one day her 10 year old son found him hanging in the garage. And because she was so short and he was already like five, three at like 10, she, they were trying to get him down. So she had her 10 year old son cut down dad. And it's just, there was someone else that it was, um, her husband, she knew he was really sad, but he, she was like sitting on the front porch and she'd been out there maybe like five, 10 minutes. And, um, her husband came out and said, Hey, come, you know, I'm going to take a nap, come lay down with me on the bed. She found out after laying down with him for like 20 minutes, she thought he was taking a nap underneath like the pillow or something like that. He had taken a whole bottle of pills. This is another soldier that came home. So he had died and she had no warning and she knew nothing. So listening to those things, it it made me feel better in people's grief. And that sounds awful, but it's like you compare your situations and those things that I just felt so extremely grateful to have been with him. And I mean, I had no words for these people. These are the most catastrophic, tragic, horrible things to happen. And when people are trying to tell you, you know, you need to be happy or you need to move on or you need to do this. There a lot of people are really well intentioned, but they and they want to help and they don't know how to help. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book, whether it's you or your family or a friend or a friend of a friend or whatever. I have ways to talk to people, ways to help people, ways just to be more sensitive because grief is such a taboo thing that so many people don't know how to talk about. I think the most helpful thing people did is just listen, be willing to listen. A few weeks after he died, I created a healing blog, which was like maybe one third of the people that I had on Facebook where I would just kind of bleed on paper and write how I was feeling and be open and honest and I have all these posts as well in the book as they're happening in real time. Um, For me, it was just really helpful to feel like I was getting it out, getting it out to the world. I wasn't holding on to it and just having people respond, you know, I'm here anytime or, you know, those types of things. I initially thought of calling this book a few years ago and I thought of it, how social media saved my life because it really is. I mean, even, you know, pre-COVID, we're all very isolated. We're all very, stuck to our phones and all of these different things. But if you can feel that support, those types of things, that was really helpful. And it was really, and I write about this as well. It was really hard for me to ask for help. You have a lot of pride um, and, you know, it's really tough, but you're the, you're the spouse, you're the, you're the caretaker, you're the team captain when your person's ill and you're taking care of it. And you are glad to be giving updates and asking for help because you know, you can only do so much. Later, when it's you, I felt like a hamster that had lost my wheel, but I was still running because I was so used to taking care of him and needed to know all these different things. So when it came to taking care of myself, it was a lot harder to ask for help. And I ended up posting in this blog a few times, like, will someone text me or call me or, you know, someone came and took me for a walk? Yes. Like a dog. Like she was like, I left my dog inside and she was like, Rachel, let's go for a walk, you know, put on your shoes. Come on. So I think the biggest thing I had to learn the hard way is just asking for help and knowing that it's okay not to be able to do it all yourself. Um, That's the thing about being a caregiver is you, a lot of people shelve their needs. I say, I think I was about 50, 50. I would go to a concert every now and then, or a friend would come for a cup of coffee to the hospital or whatever, but it's really tough to realize this is me now. Nobody else is going to be able to do it you know, you got to suck it up. You have to do it. And within doing that, ask for help. And like today, present day, I have alarms on my phone that I have set to check in with different people that are going through some tough things. So I don't forget in my busy life, checking in with them. Like I had people check in with me. So those are, I would say the biggest takeaways and things that were said that were helpful and that were not.
0: I like that last tip. So what is one tip that you would give Well, I think there's a lot of tips actually rolled into that too, for other people (laughs) hurting and going through something similar. What was the best piece of advice that someone, well, you said your, was your brother that gave, right? Was your brother Mm -hmm. that told you to be better or better?
1: Mm -hmm. That was a really good one. Um, what was really helpful to me is I had an aunt tell me like when I was like six months out. So I would have this countdown count up, I guess you could say. So each month after his death, like the, the day to the, you know, every month after he died. So it's like May 21st, June 21st. Da, 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 I got more empowered and excited as the months would go by because I would be just excited that I'm making it. I'm surviving. And my aunt said something like, I was just like, oh, you know, I wish I could speed this up. Da, 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 it's so hard. And she said, this is so fresh. You have to give yourself time. And I think people don't realize. So I'm eight years out and on his death anniversary, I used to, um, have like my sisters get together or I'd go to a friend's house, like people that actually knew him. I would spend time, you know, go do something fun this year. I'm just working. It's been eight years. It's, it's, I'm very displaced from him in that within writing about it so many times, but I've worked really hard to get here. Of course, he's dear to my heart. The reason I'm doing all of these things, but I have, I've successfully moved on. Of course, it's taken a ton of work to get here, but I think that, um, just knowing that, you know, doing things on your own timeline, doing what works for you is the best thing. So I remember watching, friends and everybody loves Raymond and Frazier and things like that. And just belly laughing and being like, I can have joy, like real re realizing these things about yourself, creating these new traditions, creating these new things. That's not, you know, the easiest thing to do, but, but doing that is great because when you are six months, one year, two years, that's still really fresh. And I think that having my aunt say that to me, let me know every, la- every bit of laughter I had every like, those were gems to put in my little bag of, I'm making it, I'm being successful, those things that it does take, it's like a staircase, it takes, and you don't know where the top is, it's going into the clouds. So I think that um hearing that little bit of wisdom helped me rephrase my Urgency, because you just want to get it over with. You want to feel better. You want to zoom into this place, and that's not really a tangible thing.
0: I want to bring circle, kind of circle back to like all these the different losses that you had mentioned earlier, and like the groups and stuff. And I think it's easy for people on the outside to make assumptions too that it was a you know it's a loving relationship, right? That yeah, whomever you lost was a loving relationship. But I just want to. I feel the need to bring up that sometimes that's not the case. And right. so, especially if you're someone that is going to say something like, let's see, for example,
1: they're in a better place now. Yeah. <laughs> or
0: I mean, just some of the things that people say, it's like, well, you know, you don't even know. We don't know what the intricacies of the relationships are like, right? We don't know behind closed doors, what, how the relationship really, truly was. We know people for the, for what they, show us. Right. And, um, so I just, I don't know. I felt the need to bring that up that sometimes you can lose a spouse, but it might not have been a loving relationship. They might be relieved because they were being abused. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I just wanted to bring that to attention. Um, I just felt like I had to, I don't know why. Yeah, no, it's very true. So, I mean, it sounds like grief has taught you a lot as it does for all of us. Um, Mm -hmm. Even me 30 years out, 30 plus years out of my own losses. What gives you the most joy though today? That's a loaded question.
1: (laughs) Well, my faith, my faith in knowing that I went through the toughest thing possible and not that I want more. I'm hoping that you know, like I said, I'm about to be 39. I'm hoping that the bad stuff happened when I was younger. Knock on wood on my fake wood desk here. But that, not that I want bad things to happen, but I'm like, here I am, hear me roar. I've been through the worst thing ever. And since I've been through that, I know that I can get other, through other things as well. You know, I had, um, I was eating like ice cream before bed, like almost every night for a couple of weeks, like a couple of years ago. And I was sweating at night and I didn't know the correlation between like your sugar levels. And, you know, then you cover up with covers that, that if you have that before you go to bed, it will make you sweat and sweating at night is one of the signs of leukemia. So, (laughs) you know, I'm panicking like, Oh my gosh, do you have cancer? And I'm going to the doctor because it's all these things that, you know, from being there and just knowing that, You need to take everything as it is, as the day, things totally change. God says, you know, if you make plans, he laughs at those plans. You really can't pre-plan too far ahead. I think that that brings me a lot of joy of living in the moment, being there for what's going on. Um, You know, I'm a planner, but being able to step back and, you know, check myself on that, um, Five and a half years ago, I started a job at a new place that launched a new life for me. And two weeks after I started, I had dental surgery, took antibiotics that ripped up my GI tract. And I had, then I was diagnosed with IBS and a colon disease. It's awful as that was because I was very sick for a couple of years. I've become an amazing chef and baker. I was good before. So that makes me really happy. Sometimes it's really annoying because I have to make everything from scratch. But I really enjoy baking. I really enjoy cooking. Um, here in Minnesota, it was 80 the other day. It's been raining, but you know I'm trying to get out and hike and do those things. And physically, I can't do as much as I could with the uh, digestive things. And I still have endometriosis because I still kept one ovary. But you know, getting out, being outside, walking my dog, the same dog that she's 10. She just turned 10. That's been with me. I talk about in my book since... We got her as a rescued puppy at four months old when, I, when my um, husband was first sick. All these little, regular, normal parts of life just make me really happy. In knowing that, you know, whatever happens, however, you know, I will gladly take IBS and a colon disease because I've seen the cancer world. I've been in the hospital. I've seen it all. Being able to, I feel like I just have this wealth of knowledge and experience of I've seen the worst. I've had the worst thing happen and knowing that whatever may come is much as I hate the cliche, like it could be worse. It really could. And what brings me joy is to know that the experience that I have can truly connect me with people, um, to tell them, I am so sorry. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it prettier. It doesn't make it more fair what you're going through. That's so tough. And I, I really, I've been there and You know, within this book, I just want to get it into millions of hands because when you're in it, you really do feel alone. You really do feel isolated. And, you know, I'm just really proud of this book by the grace of God to be able to give people some tips and tools of how to navigate it. And you can see, you know, I had this amazing love of my life, and my life went and then it took a while, but it went back up. And now I'm I'm just excited to help advocate and tell people. I went through
0: it. I'm okay. And you'll be okay too. Is that what you would like to scream to the world? Yes. (laughs) That is what um, that's, you know, really the premise of my podcast and why Mm -hmm. I wanted to start it too, is that the education piece that, Mm -hmm. you know, bring this topic to the forefront and talk about grief. Like we talk about the weather, make it just an open conversation that we feel we can have with each other and Without criticism and analysis and judgment and, and that there's hope. And that's why stories, you know, like yours and other guests that I have on my podcast, that's the whole point is to show that there is hope. And um, is there anything else you would like to share?
1: I don't think so. I feel like I've put a lot. <laughs> There's a lot on the table for people to think about. There's a lot on your buffet.
0: <laughs> I think just their story people that's i mean that's how people see themselves is through other yeah. people's stories and you know we all grieve at a hundred percent. There's no half grievers, and it doesn't matter what your loss is it's it is um hurtful to you, regardless of what it is and what caused it and it doesn't need to be a big T trauma loss to deeply impact you. Um, mm-hmm. And can, can we do, can actually, can we speak to the whole, because um, this isn't the whole point of you being on, but I, I do feel it's a topic that it actually is a topic as, that has not been covered on my podcast, but um, knowing that you will not be a mother, how have you navigated that? Yeah. Um,
1: so I actually looked into adoption and different things like that. And it was just, I mean, it's, I feel like it sounds stupid, but the expense of it was something that I couldn't, I couldn't afford. And, um, you know, I, I'm an aunt, I have four nieces. One of them just turned 15 the other day. There are seven, almost 17, 15, 11 and 11. And I actually was a professional nanny raising babies and things like that um you know I see Gerber commercials all that kind of stuff it's tough I had to take some time off social media um because I'd see people with their happy couples and babies and things like that when I was grieving so I think abstaining from those things is smart because we all compare you can't not compare I do still to this day sometimes grieve it a little bit But I also know that the amount of time and energy that I'm putting into advocacy to help other people, I wouldn't have that time if I had a child. So this is my baby trying to help other people is, is my baby. So I'm okay with that.
0: And that's a beautiful reminder too, that the fastest way to help ourselves heal is to put that, put our energy to others to feel better, probably the quickest turnaround mm-hmm. you'll ever get to feeling better is to focus on others yeah 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 um well thank you for sharing that i, I thank uh, you sorry I, I put you on the spot it just is something that no no really no, no it's about. okay and i know i can imagine that people have said all kinds of things well you can they're like oh adopt, you're young or,
1: you can adopt and it's like i don't think people realize it's like minimum like forty thousand dollars yeah And, you know, I have several hundreds of dollars a month in student loans and, you know, all these things. It's just, it's not easy. And it's very, I mean, the mental health aspect, it's very complicated as well with an adopted child and all of these things. And I've already been through some really hard things. So,
0: Yeah. And I think, too, like people might assume if you don't have kids, if you're of a certain age and you don't have kids, we can make these assumptions of, well, either you can't or, and if you choose not to, what, if, you know, there's, there's plenty of people yeah. out there that choose not to. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. I have many <laughs> couple of friends that don't, and it's
0: just, it's a choice. And it almost seems more offensive to other people, you know, that, oh, you choose not to, but Yeah, we project, don't we? We project. We do. Yeah, (laughs) we're a projecting society. But I I hope that through just talking and having these conversations that we can just bring some compassion to and and leave the assumptions at the door, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. Anything else you would like to share? No,
1: so you can find Wife Widow Now What? Um, Victoria will have the links, but you can find it on amazon and it's in paperback you can actually write in the budget sheet finances all these different things or if you get the ebook version you can actually click on the hyperlinks and they will take you to all the different websites to navigate what you need to and then you can find me wife widow well rachel but wife widow now on facebook and instagram and you can ask me questions anything you want i'm open
0: all right and i will put those links in the show notes and you know to the organization that you are currently raising money for that will be over probably by the time this airs but i will still put the link for that if you would. yeah you I can still
1: me. donate um
0: yeah. very very needed all right well thank you so much for being here thank Rachel. you thank for you sharing your story and remember when you unleash your heart you unleash your life much love from my heart to yours thank you for listening if you like this episode please share it because sharing is caring and until next time give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.